0: The time has come to upgrade your technology. At Harvey Norman, our specialist staff can help find a product that's right for you. We have all the biggest brands and latest technology in stock today. Like the lightweight Samsung Galaxy Book laptop with speedy Intel Core i5 processor. Now 649 euro, save 120. Or get the DJI Action 2 dual screen combo camera. Durable enough for any adventure. Now 429, save 100 euro. Discover our huge range in store or online today. Harvey Norman, your technology specialists. Go
1: between the lines with andrea gilligan this is news talk
2: you're welcome along to news talks between the lines program with myself andrea gilligan where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest i to everyone who got in contact about our last program discussing children and screen time whether it's related or unrelated to increasing levels of anxiety. Really interesting discussion. You can still listen back to the podcast and all of our podcasts on our website at newstalk.com or as always, you can go to the GoLoud app and download the podcast there. And today you can get in contact with us by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up on today's programme, we'll be asking why sex crimes are on the rise in Ireland, and it comes after recent figures show the number of incidents reported to the Gardee increased for the sixth year in succession last year, surpassing what was already a very high record, and that's according to new unpublished figures. Well, joining me in studio to discuss is the Executive Director. Director of the Rape Crisis Network Ireland, uh, Cliona Savier, and also the CEO of One in Four, Maeve Lewis. Um, just first of all, can I ask just to get your reaction um, from you both to those figures? I mean, it doesn't make for nice reading, but can you just maybe take us through some perhaps reasoning as to why it would be the case that instances, cases of sex crimes, um, they're rising and they're continuing to rise now for a sixth consecutive year. Mm-hmm um term. cleaner, clean us out here.
3: So so when we look at these numbers there's there's a lot that they tell us, but there's but what we have to remember is there's an awful lot that they don't tell us. So we're very careful when we look at them to say what this means is that sex crimes are going up for example and indeed just what a trend is because there can be fluctuation in the numbers from year to year which doesn't mean anything long term as such so you have to look at but now we're seeing six whole years of, of, of the numbers going in one direction so mm. you know, we'd be comfortable saying no that's definitely a trend upward but what we are looking at here are the figures that are reported to the guards so we're not looking at incidents out there So what's happening in the general population is a different number and we don't know what that is. So what we're looking at is who's coming forward to the guards and how they're coming forward to the guards. So this actually, and what we often say is this might be a good news story, not a bad news story in in a very odd um, sort of way. And what we might be looking at is that more people that are experiencing sexual violence are reporting. So rather than staying silent or other than you know so they're having they have more faith in the mm. system they have more faith in the guards they have more faith in their community and their families and the support they're going to get and so they feel confident to come forward okay. so it may not mean that there's more sexual violence out there however I think I think we're beginning to ask the question of, you know, is there is there actually, is, okay. does this actually reflect I might more?
2: just get, get into the sort of the, the nitty gritty of the stats in just a moment. But just if I can ask you, Maeve Lewis, for your response to that. I mean, would, would you view it in the same way that this could actually be a good news story in the sense that it's reflective of more people are actually reporting and are coming forward?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd echo a lot of what Kleena has to say. I mean, there is no doubt there is an upward trend. But we have to remember, too, that there has been, I think, a huge shift in Irish society and attitudes towards sexual crime Mm. and that um, a lot of the perhaps stigma and shame associated with being a victim of a sexual crime is perhaps dissipating. I think we also need to acknowledge that the Gardaí have made significant changes in how they manage um, disclosures of sexual crime um, over the past number of years with their special protective services units, which essentially now are operating all over the country. Um, as Clean has said is there actually an increase in sexual crime or is it that people feel more comfortable coming forward and perhaps until we have a proper instant survey of sexual crime across Mm. the country which the CSO is currently undertaking then we won't perhaps know the answer to that
2: Do we know who is coming forward even in terms of a demographic or Gender break. You know what so I mean. The, the, the pulse system doesn't tell yeah. us
3: that. The the guard of the stats don't tell us that. They don't break that down in term, terms of demographics. Um, what we have, what we've always seen in terms of, of of trying to look under those numbers, is that there's certain contexts and crimes that people are more likely to report than others. And so if you think of it in very broad terms, the further out from you, the perpetrator is. So if it's an absolute stranger. And then, of course, the closer in is that it's your immediate family member. And in many so,
2: cases, a lot of incidents of—I know we're not talking about mm-hmm. the same thing here—but when we when we talk frequently about, for instance, femicide, one of the points that comes up is that that's more likely to be committed by somebody that is kind of within your mm-hmm. immediate, mm-hmm. you know, fam, family circle. Mm-hmm. Is that often the case with with, for instance, sex crimes?
0: Well, with our clients, um, they're all adults who are survivors of child sexual abuse and well over half our clients have been sexually abused by a family member, which blows apart the myths that children are most at risk from, you know, the stranger lurking outside mm-hmm. the school. Yeah. Um, um, and an increasing number of our clients do actually want to engage with the criminal justice system. Um. Again, that's probably due to having good support, Um. better experiences with the Gorthy. When it comes to adults, mm. uh, Rape well, I mean, victims, the, the, um, it, I think, Clean is right. It's very difficult to say. And, but the numbers, the numbers are
3: the you know the the
0: the, the numbers reflect
3: that come to rape crisis centres, they reflect very much the Savvy Report, which is, of course, the data there is 20 years old now. But, you know, the, the biggest cohort, if you like, of, of sexual violence perpetration, of, of victims and, and perpetrators are within the family. So um, what we know in terms of those who come forward is that it's likely to be, you know, it, it, you're more likely to report if, if they're further out, you're less likely yeah. to report and if they're what, closer and in. Like,
2: is it In terms of trying to put an understanding around mm-hmm. that, is it... I mean, because obviously, maybe in many cases, people are talking about a partner, yeah. um, a parent, a brother or mm-hmm. sister. Is is that mm-hmm. why there's a perhaps more of a hesitation to come forward and report because of the the, the family impact?
3: Well, ap- absolutely. I think I think survivors all when you know when when they're whether either they're there's a process. I suppose there's a number of steps, and not all survivors go through each step and in in sequence. But you know, one is that that you acknowledged to yourself first of all you know what has happened and you name it for yourself in some way shape or form um, and then you make a decision about how what you're going to do with that whether that's going and seeking support or telling your your, your loved ones um or, or reporting to the guards so there's a whole set of decisions if you like around that and what I would say is that that each of those you know you may end up having an assessment that might happen very quickly or it might happen over 20 30 years mm. um, you'll be assessing what impact that will have what why you'd go forward what' what you want out of it um you might not be that You know, clear around it, but that's essentially what you're looking at. So yes, if you if you simply imagine it, if it's a stranger um, who doesn't know anyone in your circle who's not in any way attached, you're not asking anyone in your circle to take sides there, for example. But if it's somebody within your circle and and, and even within your family, you may actually be looking around at your circle and saying, well, who's going to who's going to take my side here? Who's going to who's who's going to believe
0: me? And can that all be a deterrent? Yeah, maybe. I, I think so, absolutely. I mean, if somebody's been sexually abused within their own family. Um, the, our clients' experience are that it is far more likely that they will be ostracised, and the family dynamic and circle will yeah. come together to support the offender. Uh, and I mean, so that means if you uh, decide to go down the criminal justice route, you may be making a decision that you're going to have to break with your family, and people will have very ambivalent and uh, complex feelings about a family, even if sexual abuse has taken place. Mm-hmm. And often the motivation in deciding to make a disclosure is. Um, to protect other children and awareness that other children may be at risk Can
2: yeah. I ask you just on that point as well Maeve like are you talking there for instance and, and I know you, I'm not asking you to, to give details with regards to some of the people or the clients that you deal with but just even anecdotally is that more in for instance h- historical sex abuse cases or even in um, instances of sex abuse cases in more in more recent times
0: I think I think both um, as I said, all our clients are adults who were sexually abused in the past, so it is historic um, and they may be concerned about the current generation of children. Um, But, I mean, there's a lot of research about children making disclosures um, and I know Rosalind McIlvany will have a lot to say about that. That's her area of research. Where if the, the abuser is outside the family, generally the child will get fantastic support from the family circle. If the abuser is within the family, there will be a lot more ambivalence. And at One in Four, we have a programme for sex offenders and we also work with their families. Very often their wives are partners. And we find that the... So
2: this is just, just to clarify, this is what the actual, this is with the offender and their family. And their okay. family.
0: And if the abuse is taking place in the family, very often we will have the wife or the partner um really colluding with the offender in the sense of they're very tied in to the offender very dependent on the offender and are quite likely to blame the child now with support and um, the sort of uh, work we provide at one in four the, the women will, will will find over time that you know that that's a very distorted way of thinking but that is the reality and um, you know it, uh, the fear that it'll go public the fear that your husband is going to go to jail the implications to the family and so on all those factors yeah. play and in And just,
2: just before I move on actually just I'm quite interested in, in this programme that you're talking about is, is this something that is a voluntary programme or is this for instance through the courts or in the aftermath of perhaps a sentencing hearing that um, offenders would would go through a programme like this?
0: No, it's a voluntary programme. Now, some people will be referred through the courts, but about half the offenders in our programme will never be involved in the criminal justice system because their victims will never make a complaint to the Gorthy. They have been caught and the pressure has been put on them by their families, whoever to come. Mm. But they are all acknowledging they've caused sexual harm. And I mean, that fits with when it comes to child sexual abuse. We estimate that probably about one in 20 sex offenders ever end up with a conviction. And so, what's
2: the engagement rate like with that programme? Well, and we
0: work with about 50 offenders a year. Um, right. It's a two year programme. And um, the once people engage, the um, the dropout rate is very, very low.
2: And even, for instance, I'm just quite interested in the fact that that their spouse, male or female, w- would go along and participate in this programme as well. And there is there is uh, open engagement as well from the, the spouses or partners
0: in, in doing that. Well, I mean, when there's a disclosure of sexual abuse in a family, it's like a bomb goes off and everybody is impacted. So everybody is going to need support, to the offender, yeah. but also the non-offending yeah. family members. And if we're going to keep children safe... We really have to challenge the dynamic that has been operating in that family uh, that actually allowed the sexual abuse to take place. Uh, so we see the work we're doing as a really core child protection mm. measure.
3: Okay, Clearly, you know, yeah, yeah, just just on, on just to add to, to some of the trends that we saw, one of the very strong trends we saw over the last decade when we had when we had data on this across rape crisis centres, was that the gap between. The incident and disclosure was was shortening, so that is that for us is all about culture, all about just the support, explain that what that place. means. What, what I mean is, um, so instead of someone waiting twenty years to come forward and seek help and seek support, they're now only waiting ten years. And, and of course that, that varies but that's you know so mm. we're so we used to be looking at late 30s 40 and some and some of our some of our oldest um, first disclosure clients will you know we, we have people in their 80s who were abused as children coming forward so that's a huge gap between the incident and, and, and coming forward for support that gap is narrowing and it's narrowing on average so that for us is a very positive um, step forward because the longer someone leaves it the more mm. you know they've built a set of, of resor- resources around themselves to to support that secret if you like that they're holding
2: I I have a, just a, an, an interesting kind of thought on this I mean when we talk about instances of um, sex crimes and perhaps the reasons why some people might come forward now or there's a greater increase in people actually reporting I would have thought for instance that you know if you take some of the maybe high profile cases mm-hmm. there's sort of an awareness around it um, I think that probably the, the generation of today are maybe a little bit more engaged there's more of an openness we probably see and I don't know if this is anecdotal but certainly it appears maybe it's just down to more media coverage it would appear that there's more and more people waiving their right to anonymity as well yeah. and therefore there's more discussion around it and even um the uh, Me Too movement mm-hmm. I would have thought might have assisted and people even just being aware of the services are out there or perhaps what they perceive the, the whole process to be around going forward forward with a complaint. But just, Maeve Lewis, what's your, your view on that? Yeah,
0: I mean, I'd echo what Clean is saying is that the age when people are engaging with us has gone down 10 years ago, mainly late 30s, 40s, now with people over the age, just over 18 and into their 20s. So with that generation, I think there is a much, much greater sense that there is support available, um, that it is possible to disclose um, and that they may engage in the criminal justice system. And obviously there has to be the child protection system has to be involved as well. Of course, the downside of that is the immense pressure that is putting on services that are very under resourced right across the crisis centres at one in four. There's always waiting lists. Um, you know, we're always struggling to provide a, a timely service. Um, but I think at Me too has made a difference. I also think going back a decade, the huge revelations by the Catholic Church in Ireland really created a cultural shift for the entire society, but also for the survivors, Uh, because a lot of people I would have met as a psychotherapist Mm. would have thought they were the only person this had ever happened to. And people suddenly realised, my God, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have had uh, this experience. Um, And as our name suggests, one in four, I mean, uh, that's what we're talking about. So that has diminished the sort of sense of shame and stigma, I think, around sexual violence and has encouraged more people to come forward both to services but also of course to engage with the reporting, criminal justice system yeah. and reporting but I mean still probably only about 15 to 20% of our clients would actually want to engage in the criminal mm. justice system
2: might come to that point uh, in a moment but just and Sadlier on this, some of those points made just with regards to <coughs> perhaps maybe they're not reasons why there's more people coming Absolutely. forward
3: Yeah, I think we really have to look at and exactly the things that you pointed out there that what we're getting more and more is a much more Engaged uh, population, and then you know, for the victims themselves, just knowing more about the system, and and they're actually reporting because they want to be counted, because they want to appear mm. in the numbers, um, because uh, if you like, out of activism and defiance, they're reporting. They 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 know they're you know they're they're clear-eyed about the justice system. They're clear-eyed about what you know the court will be like, but they're still going. To, they're, they're still saying, "I want to be counted." Indeed, when we had our national statistics um, running for the rape crisis centres, we had people who used to ring us up and say, I don't want counselling and I don't want to come into the service, but I want you to record me on the system. I want to be recorded. I want to be a part of the system. I want to be counted, yeah. Yeah. So I think there's there's an element of that, of just the the survivor saying, I want to be a part of the solution. Um, I want to be heard. I want to be counted. Mm -hmm. And I want that to make a difference in terms of change.
2: Can can we just explain as well, just what exactly it is that we're talking about? I I know I mentioned at the outset, it's the number of... um, sex crimes and these are, you know, according to figures that have been recorded and I know the CSO record numbers and stats, as do um on guard the Shia Khanna But like we're not necessarily talking about instances of rape.
3: No, so so it's so when we're talking about sexual offences, it's first of all it's across the board. So it's rape, sexual assault, aggravated sexual assault, and um, all the various offences that we have um, that cover sex crimes. The but what we're looking at in terms of these stats that we're talking about today, uh, most of them uh, apart from the the ones that r- may have myself talked about in terms of our services. What we're looking at is what the Gardy report record in their books. And what the Garde record is in the pulse system and the pulse system then um, moves over to the CSO and the CSO release the stats from it. So the, the stats that CSO are releasing is the recorded instance to the Gardi. There is also another piece of work that the CSO are undertaking and that is a population survey. So that's a prevalence study. So what that is, so the Gardi, if you like, is only the only only a picture of those who come forward, those who choose to come forward, which may be a distorted picture of the whole. What the CSO prevalence study will tell us is what the what's happening in the population as a whole.
2: So is this just in the same way as you have the the census?
3: Exactly, exactly. The census, if you like, specifically on the issue of sexual right. violence. And when did they do that? Oh it's it's underway at the moment. So we will we expect to be having Stats on that in in 2013, I think. 2023. 20, um, even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a major
0: instant survey done. Um, it came out in 2003, the Savvy Report, okay, and that's where yeah. all our stats come from. That was supposed to be replicated ten years later uh, to see if there had been shifts and changes. And because you know the the, the recession in the whole country had fallen mm. apart, that didn't happen. So you know organizations like the Rape price network and ourselves put a lot of pressure on government departments to now replicate it and the good news is it is now going to be replicated every 10 years mm-hmm. and done by the cso which is obviously um you know an expert organization yeah. in collecting this sort of data i mean it's going to be an amazing um, undertaking because you're actually going to be knocking on people's doors and asking them very sensitive but th- questions it's, it's
2: funny when you say that because I I wonder um and not that I'm you know questioning the methodology mm-hmm. of the central statistics office but I just wonder in so far as that if it's done by a face to face interview process mm-hmm. You know, I mean, some people don't go to the guards to report the incident Mm. because they don't want to go through the process and they're they're afraid and perhaps perceive stigma and that kind of thing. You know, I'm just curious about...
0: I wonder... will will, the last last survey was done in in 2003 um, by telephone. Okay, yeah. And I mean, people were remarkably forthcoming. Yeah, yeah. And what did emerge there is about 50% of the people who said they had some experience of sexual violence had never told anybody, not their mother, not their Mm. husband, not their best friend. So when people are asked you know, and obviously, more the, yeah, CS, okay. the CSO interviewers are very highly trained yeah, in dealing yeah, yeah. with sensitive questions. Like they're the sort of people who would do the household survey. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So you know, and people
3: people ask, you know, uh, you know, because the decision was made in twenty eighteen around around putting this 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 job to the CSO, and it's a very very significant and, and substantial job that mm-hmm. we've given them here. And people ask why it's going to take so long to to get the stats out the other end, if you like, and it's because of exactly the questions they're asking. They're taking extreme care they're they're incredibly expert and and they yeah. they they're, they're really mm. talking to the specialists like ourselves as well to make sure they get it right because the worst case scenario for us is that we get bad stats at mm. the end of it that we can't rely on mm. we need absolutely rock solid stats mm. and they're really doing a professional job on that and that's why it's taking Good stuff. this yeah. long okay mm.
2: so so then we'll have these stats in the next um uh, what 2023 three two years, years. years yeah. um and then presumably that will inform government in terms of the level of service provision that needs to be provided
3: Absolutely.
0: Was well, it? hopefully, um, you know, in, I mean, another major shift that has happened is the um, imposition of an EU directive on victims' rights, uh, which creates all sorts of rights for victims of crime generally, but uh, obviously also for victims of sexual crime. But one of those rights is the right to support. But actually, there has been no additional resources made available mm. to the agencies to back up that, um, that right, what which has been transposed with? into Irish law. In the
2: sense that like the the support services that the likes of yourselves and the rape crisis centre provide?
0: Yeah, so that if somebody is engaged in a criminal justice process they now have the right to support um, they've all sorts of other rights too for example the right not to be re-traumatised and mm. various rights to privacy and so on but um, that hasn't translated into additional resources for the services mm-hmm. who are actually providing that support When we look at the 16 rape crisis
3: centres and obviously everyone you know there was cuts in 2008 let me get my decades right here <laughs> 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 um, the um, you know when we look at the, that, that, those numbers and we look at the numbers today and there have been a few increases small increases in the last two years um, we're still, we're still on average. Not, we haven't reached 2008 standards of funding. So we haven't even got back to 2008 Despite the
2: fact there's actually more people looking for it. Despite the
3: fact that we have a huge increase in demand. So, you know, that's at a very basic level, that's what we're looking Mm. at here. Just, you know, the the lack of, if you like, taking up really seriously the need for investment here. We've still got huge waiting lists, which themselves are, you know, a pretty bad indicator of because because managers get to be quite creative with how they use their resources um, to meet survivors' needs because no one wants to leave a survivor on a waiting list and and outside the door. so so really we need a really a really mm, serious yeah. investment there. Okay. But on the Victims of Crime Act, it's it's also you know, one of the things that so we need to put in place resources to meet the obligations the state has on it under the Victims of Crime Act. But of course the Victims Directive itself wasn't just confined to the justice system. So at the moment the Victims of Crime Act simply if if you like corrals it off to if you're engaged with the justice system and those rights kick in but actually you are entitled to those rights even if you're not engaging and what with what are the, those rights? So, well, may have mentioned one, the in, right to support. support so yeah. So for example, to, you know, don't particularly, so when they're engaging with survivors and when they're, you know, which they are quite, you know, quite significantly engaging with survivors, the Victims of Crime Act doesn't actually refer to them, but actually the Victims Directive does. So, you know, it's something we need to look at in terms of just how much we need to invest to meet the obligations of the state to victims.
2: Okay. We're just going to take a very short break. We'll have more on this issue in just a moment.
0: Between the lines on news
2: you're very welcome back to the second part of today's programme. We're discussing the uh, recent figures which show the number of incidents of sex crimes reported to the Gardaí has increased again for the sixth year in succession last year, so, uh, surpassing what was already um, a record high. And joining me still in studio today, our panel still with us, uh, Cleanus Adlier, who's the Executive Director of the Rape Crisis Network of Ireland and also the CEO of the organisation One in Four, Maeve Lewis. My thanks to you both for staying with us today. Um, I should have perhaps asked this at the outset but I just want to ask you both in terms of the services that you do provide because we were talking about service provision just before the break there Um, perhaps Maeve Lewis just just for people listening to this today um, just explain to people what it is that you offer in terms of one and four
0: okay so our main group of service users to use that horrible word um, are adults who have been sexually abused as children so for those people there is a counselling service Um, There is also an advocacy support service. So, for example, if somebody is engaging with the criminal justice system or with Tusla, they would have the support of one of our advocacy officers through that process, and that's really important. And people really, really need that. Um, we also provide family support, and uh, you know, when there is a, a disclosure of sexual abuse in a family, people really need that support, and there is huge demand for that particular service. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we also provide um, a sex offender program, intervention program, mm. and uh, we work with with the families of the of the offenders as well so all told we would work with about 800-850 people every year about 50 of them are offenders the rest would be mainly so adult survivors. and risk. just
2: give us an indication of your your, um, your staff portfolio then like how many people would you have working with 800 odd
0: um, one of four is a staff of 19 and now some of those obviously would be admin support staff and we have a couple of fundraising staff but the others would be psychotherapists and advocacy officers Okay. Um, so
2: that's the, the work portfolio uh, 800 plus yeah, for, yeah. okay yeah, yeah. Um, rape crisis network because I know you're from we introduced you at the outset from the Dublin rape crisis network, but the rape crisis network isn't exclusive to Dublin, I should it's point that out. No, Rape
3: Crisis Network Ireland is, is, is the name. Um, so there's a set of services that the RC&I, if you like, deliver and then there's, I'll, I'll say a bit about what rape crisis centres do because they're different things. So rape crisis centres, um, a lot like one in four, um, there's a lot of um, meeting one on one with survivors mm. in terms of support and counselling and psychotherapy. Um, there will be advocacy work and there will be community work as well. There'll be interagency work at a local level. Um so we the RC and I would run the the National Court Court and Guard the accompaniment service. And this, you know, one of the reasons why we might be seeing more reporting is because the way that the Guard they engage with survivors in the initial has has been transforming, and yeah. so one of the things they do is that they will they will have trained accompaniment people from from one of four or one of the sixteen rape crisis centres across the country, um, and and the guardi are happy to have an initial conversation before making a mm. statement. So you don't you can go and explore that with the guardi before you have to make a statement. See, I think that's
2: yeah. I'm re- really interested in this cleaner because one of the things that people often say to us in when we're discussing things like this is that you know they first of all they don't know if what they've experienced. is abuse and secondly they're petrified of the process and what's involved so take me through if you know if if i feel i've experienced at some stage in my life Mm -hmm. um something that could be classified as sexual abuse Mm -hmm. so talk me through what i do there i if i contact
3: yourselves to have a kind of an an initial chat well the first thing i would say is you know never think that that you know your conversation is not important enough it's important if it's if it's on your mind in any way shape or form it's important and 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 we we respect that so ring any of your your local rape crisis centres ring the 24 hour line um you can find the, the rape crisis centres on www i don't think we need to say the w anymore <laughs> these days but uh, old habits rape crisis help ie um you'll find a map of ireland with all the all the services yes. there you can click on and find your your local service in, in whatever county you're in um, and and just give a ring there. We're always open to those conversations, you know. Even if you don't necessarily want to name it or don't know what it is or don't think mm-hmm. it's serious, it's never not serious enough if it's if it's on your mind. Yeah. you okay. deserve support.
2: So we have that conversation. Um, perhaps you know. I, I decide to to press ahead with what could be a you know a, um, a criminal case mm-hmm. or looking at a criminal uh, prosecution. One of the things you mentioned there in terms of the legislation at the moment is that there is now a sort of a support mechanism mm-hmm. now legally where. You know, just because you go into the, your local Garda station, it's mm-hmm. not that you're going in to press charges instantly. So just kind of talk us through that. So,
3: so um, let's say you go into your Garda station. Let's say they're your first port of call. Um, they actually have a, an obligation to give you information about resources in terms of supports. Um, they, you can, you can go a number of routes into the Garda station. You can go directly there. You can ask. You can ask them. You know, there are specialist units not everywhere in Ireland yet. That will be happening soon. Um, but you can, you can basically ask for an initial conversation. You can. Go through a rape crisis centre, or one in four, or another specialist organisation, and they might they might have somebody um, who's trained um, who'll be able to accompany you, who maybe will set up a meeting. With the guardy in the local mm-hmm. crisis centre, so you don't even yeah. have to go to exactly. the station. Yeah, maybe you
0: can, and you know, in fact, uh, you know, when people contact us and they talk to one of our advocacy officers, go through all the options. Um, we can actually contact the guardy and request that somebody will come to our offices and meet the person to because that, that can be a deterrent going Absolutely. into the local. Well, I mean, it's very intimidating yeah. to walk into the public office, and local guardy station, and say, "I want to report yeah. sexual abuse." I mean, how do you do that with people queuing up behind you to get their passport signed? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Report their car stolen or whatever. So. So that's important and the guards really have become mm. much more I think sensitive to the challenges that are there
2: and as mm. you mentioned there's often very specific units that actually deal mm. Sp- spe- uh, specialist Guardi that now deal solely with cases uh, like this as well so there's obviously mm-hmm. an, you know sensitivity and experience that goes with that too but Cleaner.
3: So the, I mean the next steps after that if you do decide to make a statement and you can always have somebody accompanying mm-hmm. you at all times along this and that person is there to advocate for you and and, and if you like your rights and just that you're minded in that as well um, the Guardi then you know will take the statement and there'll probably be a fair bit of activity at the beginning but there will then generally be a long Pause, uh, and it's not a pause because the guard they are working on an investigation and building a file. But it's a, but from the side of you know if you're outside of yeah. if you're the survivor, it can feel like nothing's happening for quite some time. The guard they are obligated to keep informing you of the case. So even if nothing's happened, they have a they have a duty to ring you and go, okay, we're still working on this, we're waiting for this to come mm. true. You know,
2: we're still yeah, just, waiting an, on update.
0: just still an update. You're aware. Although I mean, that is one of the major complaints that clients make that they feel they're not being kept informed mm. enough. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, the Gardaí are sick of listening to us saying yeah. that. We've been saying this for 20 years and they really have tried to improve on that. But I mean, the Gardaí will be working on lots of cases I was Going and to so say, presu- Presumably, yeah. if they were here today, they'd say it's exactly, a resourcing um, issue yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. um, but,
3: it's, but it is. I mean, it's a simple thing, but it's actually one of the most critical things. Like certainly in the, in the Rape and Justice Report, which came out in 2009, the biggest the biggest reason why survivors dropped out of the justice system was cuz they they were they felt abandoned mm. they felt they didn't know what was mm. happening they fell the into a black hole and the court process
2: is a it's a lengthy process mm. like
3: or oh, that's before you get to the court process so yeah. that so the file then goes to the DPP after maybe a year maybe 2 years maybe longer in the investigative process mm-hmm. and then the DPP makes a decision whether or not that goes to court um so you know you're you're you're, you're talking diminishing numbers at all times here um the DPP if if they choose not to to prosecute that case, and and if the DPP that decides you as a survivor don't don't get a say in that, um, they they do have to give you reasons. But again, the reasons they give are very generally very broad, and generally survivors feel like they've been given, if you like, a template you know, gener- generic kind of form that tells them nothing. You know, so they'll be told insufficient evidence or some some such, which doesn't tell them any detail about their own case or what happened and why their own case fell down, if you like. Um, so that's so that that's another hurdle that's that can be quite traumatic and and really that we really need to serve survivors better in in terms of really keeping them informed about it. Because survivors generally you know, they they're generally pragmatic about this once they understand, mm. you know, all of the processes. But when they're not being given information, that's really, really difficult because it's their case and their lives and it's their lives that are, if you like, on hold for this.
0: So And I think perhaps things have improved in terms of the time between making a complaint and a case, perhaps getting to court. But I mean, you know, there is a big dropout along the way because many survivors will say their lives literally are on hold during that waiting period. Yeah. Are we going to court? Is there going to be a conviction and so on and so forth? So So it's really important that that all happens. no, in a, in a and, and the court ba- backlog system is something we, we talk mm-hmm. time and time
2: about mm. again as well but just I- in our sort of hypothetical case that we have here we get a direction from the DP and, and, and the DPP are going to prosecute Um, you start now into the, the lengthy mm. core process but just to outline for listeners what are they entitled to in terms of kind of service provision going through this whole process now of most people in their lifetime will never know what the inside of a courtroom looks like so it is one of the most daunting experiences
0: mm. mm-hmm. Yeah, Um. I mean if the survivor is in touch with us, we will arrange for them, for example, to go and see the court before the case starts.
2: That's one in four. just uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah.
0: And uh, the, the, I know yeah, the rape crisis centres do the same. Um, we will arrange or insist that they do have the right to meet the prosecuting barrister. Um, that sometimes goes very well. Sometimes that happens at the last minute and it's a disaster because the client is so nervous. I mean, we regularly get calls from people in an absolute panic who have never been involved in a support service whose case is coming up the next morning and help. Can somebody, you know, Mm. and that's very difficult to respond to, you know, um, to respond to immediately. I would advise anybody who's thinking going down that route to make sure they access the rape crisis centres or ourselves and that they do have specialised support in place Mm. before they ever, ever go near Mm. a courtroom. Um, And then, I mean, while there have been big changes in the court, the... um, most of our clients just find the court, the trial itself, incredibly traumatising really, yeah. and re-traumatising. Mm-hmm. We have clients who say that the experience of being in court is actually almost worse than the, the abuse itself in terms of the impact it has had on them. Um, we, you know, we li- Our whole judicial system is very adversarial. And especially with our clients, where the offence happened many years ago and when there is no forensic evidence, there's no witnesses, it all comes down to the credibility of the victim and the role of a good defense barrister is to tear apart that credibility and really try to undermine the character of the complainant um to suggest they're lying to dig into their past to see if there's you know discrepancies and so on and so forth so it's a very difficult experience um so people absolutely need that Good support. Okay,
3: clearly. Yeah. yeah, no, the specialist specialist support is, is is critical. It's also it's also now a right, you know, you know, under and that, that it should be supported and that you should you should be able to access it. So so again the state must provide this. Um and that generally it'll be independent advocacy, so it'll mm. be providing it through us through funding the likes of ourselves or someone else. Yeah, I want um, to ask to you do about it, that. This specialist but,
2: support services that we're mm. talking about. Like if somebody contacts yourselves, is it free?
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. If, um for the court support service that is for you. OK. Mm-hmm.
2: And then once we go through the court process and for instance we, we get a, um, a criminal conviction or, mm-hmm. or we don't whatever the outcome is I mean presumably there's a whole raft of support measures then that go on for a lifetime. It,
3: the, there is now under the victim's directive there's a whole list there. Um, A lot of the time uh, previously one of the problems was there wasn't if, if you like after the, this, this, this intense amount of Demand on survivors, um, and the you know because it, essentially the whole justice system leans on the survivor to make this conviction happen, um, and and you know basically then survivors you know they were just left you know abandoned if you like at that point. So one of the things that you know for a survivor that gets to the point of court, what what you know what the expectation and the hope is that they get a hearing. In that they finally get to tell their story, um, and they finally get to be heard, that actually in our adversarial system doesn't doesn't often happen in a way that that feels her- you know survivors don't feel heard because of the formulas that are being applied, mm. what can and can't be said, and all the rest in a very you know it's a very stylized almost you know process that defence process, and um, so the victim's impact statement after a conviction, the victim's impact statement, if you will remember that that came about after Elvina um campaigned on this is where the survivor gets to tell their story in their own words. Now there are still rules around Mm. that but they finally get to tell their, you know, have their own voice heard in the courtroom. So that, you know, it has been a really critical piece but again, as I say, there are some rules around that one. So again, we, we do provide services around, you know, and there are supports around that between the Guardian and ourselves around supporting people to write their victim impact statements. But after that, then the survivor has a whole set of rights around particularly where their safety may be, you know, they there may be safety questions about being informed from probation services about when someone is going to be released. Yeah. Um, about the decisions being made about release, um day releases that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. um, they have rights to 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 be informed around that now they don't get to dictate no. the you know the terms of of the the offender, but they certainly get to to be informed about their own safety and and to have knowledge around that
2: um I want to ask you just kind of finally today um we had earlier this week the sentencing hearing, the first of its kind in this country under new legislation enacted last year with regards to um, coercive control. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion around the details of the, of the court hearing in um, er, earlier this week, but just the significance of that, Maeve um, Lewis.
0: Oh, I think it is absolutely huge. I mean, there are so many people, mainly women, living in um, intimate relationships where they are utterly, utterly controlled in a very abusive way by their intimate partners. Um, and, you know, oddly enough, the growth in technology has made it increasingly possible to control literally every minute of a person's And day. not
2: necessarily physical abuse.
0: And it is not necessarily physical. It is emotional and yeah. psychological abuse, which completely undermines the um, person's sense of autonomy and control in their own lives, often isolates them hugely from family and friends, um, may involve physical abuse as well. So it, it is really significant that we now have this legislation and that there has been a conviction with quite a substantial sentence. Yes.
2: Okay, look at, the, yeah, and absolutely there's been quite a lot of, quite a lot of discussion around that case um, earlier this week too. Just finally to you both today, I'm conscious that the discussion we've had and taken people through this process, um, while although it's been hugely informative, I'm sure for people, people may want to now get in contact with yourselves to maybe discuss any of the issues that we've uh, we've thrashed out today. But uh, Maeve Lewis, contact details.
0: Um, you can contact us through our website, which is 1in4.ie or our phone is two4070.
2: And also um, for the Rape Crisis Network?
0: So
3: the for, for your local centre around the country, for one of the 16, the website rapecrisishelp.ie um, the 24-hour, if you want to make a phone call, the 24-hour helpline run by the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre is 1800 7 7 eight hundred double seven double eight double eight.
2: Hugely informative discussion, ladies. My thanks to you both for your time today. That's uh, Cliena Adlier, who's the Executive Director of the Rape Crisis Network Ireland and Maeve Lewis, the CEO of One in Four. Do stay with us. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment.
1: Between the lines on news talk
2: you're very welcome back to the final part of News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. This week, we're continuing our discussion asking why sex crimes are on the rise in Ireland after recent figures suggested that the number of incidents reported to the Gardaí has increased for the sixth year in succession. Well, joining us in, stu- in studio to discuss is uh, Dr Rosaline McElvaney, who's a clinical psychologist and psychotherapist and also a lecturer in psychotherapy at DCU. Rosaline, my thanks to you for your time today. Thank you. We've just been discussing with uh, Cleona Sadlier and um, Cleona Sadlier sorry I should say and Maeve Lewis for the first part of the programme today Um, reasons why more people are now going to the Gardaí it would appear from the, the figures to report incidents of um, sexual abuse and sex crimes. Just give mm-hmm. us your own ex- experience of this, having carried out a lot of research in the area.
1: Yeah, I suppose that the difficulty in this area is that we never really know um, when we hear about prevalence figures. we Because there's so much difficulty for people in actually telling other people that it happened to them, even people in their close social network, Um, And then beyond that, actually reporting it to authorities, we never really um, get reliable information about how many people have been sexually abused. And then, you know, what these increases mean, as you mentioned yourself, you know, there may be an increase in reporting. Does that mean there's an increase in actual incidents? Um, In in my research, what I've been focusing on is, you know, what it is that stops people from telling and what it is that helps them tell. And particularly, we have a long history in, in Ireland, although this is a universal phenomenon, that um, the vast majority of people actually never tell anybody um, until adulthood when they've experienced sexual assault as a younger child, Why as an adolescent. Saying? Well, the reasons are complex and they, they usually vary from one individual to another. Yeah. But if you like, if you think of it in terms of <clears throat> there are factors within the person. So people can feel responsible for what happened. Um, they can feel that they, you know, they should have done something different, that in some way they are to blame for what happened. And they're afraid of acknowledging that to other people. They're afraid that other people will blame them because they actually blame themselves. There are... Um, issues around people feeling ashamed of what happened and not wanting other people to know about it and not wanting to be judged by other people and not wanting to be be seen by other people Mm. as somebody who has been sexually assaulted. Um, Then if you go outside the person, um, they're afraid that it will impact on their relationships Um, As I said, they might be afraid that people will judge them. You know, people have had very negative experiences when they have told other people, even in intimate relationships, when somebody has told their partner, they have been rejected as a result of it. They've been, you know, called a slut because of it. They've been um, abused again because of it, because they're seen as easy prey. So unfortunately, you know, even when people do pick up the courage to tell someone else, they're not always met with a positive um, reaction. And, you know, we have a lot of history of of people talking about experiences that they've had mm-hmm. of telling someone getting a nev- negative reaction and then never telling anyone again. Um, so some of even those published reports that we have in Ireland where they investigated a um, history of yeah. sexual abuse, sexual violence. People tell their stories and they talk about very negative reactions that they got. So you know, these, these issues in terms of you know, making sure that people respond in a very supportive way, that they don't judge, that they understand how difficult it is to tell. All of these things really help create a society where people are able to tell more. I'm curious, just from
2: your research in terms of mm-hmm. uh, d- disclosure, whether do we have a kind of a breakdown in terms of who's more likely to come forward, whether it's men, women, urban areas, rural well, areas? Well, we know
1: from international research that men are more reluctant than women. Um, and, you know, some of that has been put down to issues like men not seeing themselves as a victim, finding it harder to acknowledge that they have been victimized. Um, men uh, being afraid that they would be seen as uh, likely to perpetrate sexual violence if they acknowledge that something has happened to them themselves. Unfortunately, there can be these societal attitudes that get in the way of men actually coming forward and talking um sometimes there can be a difficulty for men and indeed for women in identifying that what happened was sexual violence so i think one of the issues that we're seeing now particularly in third level colleges and young people is this whole issue of non-consensual sexual activity and you know young people really having difficulty acknowledging is is this something that is actually sexual assault yeah. or is have i misunderstood this not knowing Should, what it is not knowing what it is not being not being able to identify the cues earlier in the pattern of the behavior to be able to say, wait a minute, I'm not comfortable with this. Um, I, I want to I want to stop now. And being able to communicate that for, for the person who may be the victim or the person who's acting out sexually, not realizing, no, no, I need to check out with my partner that they're comfortable with this before I take this any further. Um so I, I think, you know, a lot of that kind of education and awareness is really becoming more of a challenge now.
2: We heard from Maeve Lewis earlier in the program. Actually, um, in many cases where you have perhaps the alleged offender or, or perpetrator of sex crimes, where they can often go through, as Maeve Lewis talked about, um, you know, a program that they have within one and four for for people accused of sex crimes, but actually their family as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the obvious impact on. Their oh, yeah. family members
1: as well. The, the kind of ripple effect of sexual violence um, is, is kind of goes broader and broader, not not just, you know, a nuclear family, but extended family and communities. I mean, in my work in, as a clinician and um, working with children, um, unfortunately, sometimes, particularly in situations where you have children acting out sexually against other children, um, you have a whole community involved. You have, you know, fractured relationships in communities and can take a, a lot of work and a long time to, to repair and heal those kind of relationships. Um, I also just just want to, to wanted to mention about, um, you know, I was talking about at the kind of personal level, at the maybe family level, mm. but even at a societal level, you know, we know in communities where there are very punitive attitudes towards sexual offending that it deters people from coming forward and getting help um so even even at the at the larger society level you know the way sexual abuse is reported in newspapers on the media um, if it's all very kind of sensationalized and if people who offend are portrayed as monsters um that that lends to a, a kind of a society that actually prevents people from coming forward looking for help
2: so so that would actually work as a
1: deterrent Yeah, coverage it would it wor- work as a deterrent um in terms of protecting children and protecting people from from being assaulted mm-hmm. uh, a deterrent to people actually getting the help that they need.
2: Um, in terms of anonymity mm-hmm. and I suppose we were discussing this earlier in the programme and, and and maybe you might know better it, it would certainly appear as though there's more and more people waiving their right to anonymity in, in recent years or perhaps it's just that there's more coverage of the courts yes. that we certainly hear about these yes. kind of cases. Yeah. Um, I imagine that that probably has a kind of a split effect in that Maybe some people are deterred from going forward with their case because they don't want to be seen as the person who has to stand outside the court and give their victim impact statement. They don't want to be photographed. They don't want to be named. And then at the same time, maybe in many cases, that's actually the motivation for doing it is to see the person named.
1: Sometimes. And and I'm sometimes struck by the naivety um, that people um, have in terms of engaging with the legal system that they actually don't understand what this now means. So people can kind of make complaints and not understand that this is now out, out of their hands in relation to investigations, et cetera, um, and not appreciate that actually, you know, there will be a court case. It, it won't be completely private in terms of them being able to... Yes, they won't be identified in the press, but if someone comes in and sits in on a, on a trial or whatever, mm. they they can be identified in their local community, et cetera. Um, so that can act as a deterrent uh, when people know about it. But as I said, I'm sometimes struck by... You know, people's lack of awareness of how the legal system operates and, and what kind of protections there are, for instance, mm-hmm. and what pr- kind of protections there aren't. Yeah, well,
2: hope, hopefully the earlier part of our programme today will be able to shed yeah. uh, certainly some light on that um, for people if they if they aren't aware. Can I just ask you, um, Rosalind, just obviously from your own research, um, academic research in this particular area, How do we compare to other countries, for instance, other European countries in terms of the kind of system and support that we offer here for victims?
1: Huge variation. Um, I I know when I go to international conferences, I mean, obviously, when I'm at home, I'm giving out the whole time about (laughs) we don't have this and it's inadequate and we don't have a speedy enough response, etc. Then when I go to international conferences and I hear people talking from other countries and I think, you know, actually, we're not so bad um, because, you know, there's always somewhere worse. Um, I think, in terms of international research, like we don't have the same. We don't. You're familiar with the Savvy study, and and you know that's the only big national probability study that we've ever had in Ireland in terms of getting reliable figures mm. about the prevalence of. And and there's good other information in that in that study, not just about prevalence but patterns. You know who who's more likely to offend, who's more likely to be a victim, etc. And um, so we need more data like that, and you know certainly other studies certain other countries have more robust data and more up-to-date data. Ours is very outdated at this stage. Well,
2: actually, both Maven and Cliona had mentioned in the earlier part of the programme today that the Central Statistics Office yes. are, are yes, conducting, engaged in a, yeah, yeah, yeah. which hopefully we should have the results of. And in that'll three. be
1: fantastic to have because, I mean, it's good to have the comparison mm. but we really need to know, you know, what what is the problem before we can, you know, properly yeah. address the issue. Um
2: one of the other issues that we just touched on very briefly in the first part as well, Rosling, is the idea of, you know, that level of information that people are entitled to have, um, in terms of kind of probation services. If they're, um, if the the, the recuser, yes. has you know been convicted, serves time in prison, and then is subsequently you know due for release and yes. has followed perhaps maybe various different um rehabilitation programs, even in particular with regards to to sexual violence rehabilitation programs, mm-hmm. um. Is that a difficulty for people, have you found in your research, the idea that, well, hang on, our justice system works in the sense that the person has served their time. Um, they're now going to be, you know, re- released back into society. I can't say where they're going to live or have a say in that. Yeah. Um, but they might only be a couple of counties you yes. know, away from me. Is Does that, have you found? Well, or,
1: it's a problem because when you say the justice system works... Works in what way? I mean, the justice system is not about necessarily rehabilitation. So, you know, you can have people serving sentences, but they don't get help with their sexual offending behaviour, why they were doing it in the first place. And, you know, that that then impacts on what a risk they might be to the community yeah, afterwards. But the
2: prison service offer, um, the Irish prison service, I actually yes. did work on it myself. There is there, there um, sexual... Um, uh, the name programs, of is, yeah, yeah, programs, yeah, yeah just absolutely, escapes just therapeutic
1: programs yeah. for sex offenders, and if people engage in if those, they engage, absolutely, yeah. but you know, most people don't engage in those, whether it be in terms of lack of resources, whether it be that they are, I mean, obviously, to engage in a program like that, you have to have some level of insight in terms of being able to acknowledge I did wrong.
2: Yeah, there has to be the acceptance at the outset. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um,
1: but 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 you know, certainly, my my sense of it is that there is not there are not enough resources in terms of those kind of rehabilitative. Um, approaches towards helping people so that they won't offend again so that's a problem you know the, the justice system only deals with the sentencing piece it doesn't necessarily yeah, deal okay. with the therapeutic piece or at least only an inadequate Just
2: can law. I ask you maybe finally Rosalind just like in terms of when we look at maybe best practice in this area from your, from your research is there mm-hmm. anything that can be done to try and um, help people maybe go and going through this process, maybe to make it a, a little bit easier for them?
1: I think one, one of the things that comes up in a lot of my research, and this is research with children and research with adults, um, is that sometimes when you ask people, you know, they tell you the first time that this they've had an experience and you say, "Have you you know, have you reported this? Have you mm. told anyone else? And they say no and you say, you know, w- what would have helped? Um, and what's coming out a lot in the research is, well, nobody ever asked me. And so what we're finding in these big studies is that people are telling for the first time. In the SAVI study, 47% of the people who disclosed an unwanted sexual experience under 17 were telling for the first time. They never told anybody before that survey. Like, that's a huge percentage, bigger than in other international studies. So I think there is something at a culture level about us having more conversations about sexual violence. Um, asking people, you know, has something like that ever happened to you? And and actually encouraging people. So by I suppose by asking someone, you're telling yeah. them, I'm able for the answer. You know, I'm OK if you tell me that you have. And, and we can talk about this. Whereas I think the culture of silence around it is really and and very damaging.
2: Rosaline McIlvany, who's a clinical psychologist and psychotherapist and also lecturer in psychotherapy at DCU my thanks to you for your time today I'm afraid that's all we have time for on the programme if you've missed any of the programme you can listen back on our website at newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app my thanks to the production team Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from 6 and between the lines this time next week but for me Andrea Gilligan have a good day